Hi, it's Dan Hare, and I just wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Business Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, author and music historian Robert Lawson. We'll be talking about his latest book, Wheatfield Empire, The Listener's Guide to the Guess Who, and get some insights into one of Canada's most well-known and most loved bands. I try to write the kind of books that uh, I would want to read. So I'm not really interested in any of the backstage drama or, you know, groupies and, and drugs and, yeah. and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm really interested in the music and uh, the details about the uh, group's recording career and their touring and TV appearances and radio shows and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So my books are very strictly uh, about music. Did you have any restrictions or warnings in your writing, you know, about what your content could be or should be? Not really. I, I, I really sort of make that uh, determination myself. With the Guess Who book, you know, I did interview most of the ex-band members, and occasionally they may, you know, go off on a tangent and yeah. start kind of ranting about one of the other guys, and I just, you know, let them <laughs> let them go. But I know that I'm not going to put any of that stuff in the book. Well, fair enough. But I guess there's always a balance between focusing on the music, the career part of it, and the people. And you you tend to focus on the music rather than the details of the people involved. So you're you're doing the what rather than the why. But, you know, the why is interesting as well, because it often plays into the reasons for the tunes and the albums. Right. And and in that case, I, I do describe a little bit uh, of that. I mean, by, by talking about, I guess I don't want to give the impression that I ignore that kind of stuff, because if, if that's a detail that impacts uh, the group or impacts the recording, then sure, I'm going to mention it. But, you know, more of the kind of salacious gossip stuff um, is what I'm talking about that I have no interest in. And, and I, I really leave all, out that kind of stuff. But yeah, to mention that, uh, you know, they were butting heads over religion or lifestyle or something. I think that's fair game. Yeah. And you did mention, I, I read the whole book and it was, it was great. I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, your book is like an annotated discography is the way I could describe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like if you, you took the liner notes to, to every, every CD and, and put it all together in a book kind of thing. It's, yeah. it's that, that kind of detail about the music. But the first thing about the Guess Who that, that always sort of got me, especially being a fan and sort of going through and owning all those albums at one point was the revolving door nature of the band, like with so many members in and out, you know, and, and that is the why part of it that you're saying, what, what the heck, you know, what, why was there such a revolving door? Right. And I, and I do mention, you know, Jim Cale's departure and uh, yeah, Randy's departure. I mean, that kind of stuff ha has to come up. Uh, you know, you can't just go on to the next album and say, oh, you know, here's a new guy. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, so I, so I do mention, uh, uh, the revolving door and you, and you're right. You had, uh, guys coming and going. It's almost like every third album, they had to switch it up. Yeah. And, and it, it the interesting thing that you, that you bring out in the book is that it, it led to some cool tunes, right? Like when Kurt Winter came in and he introduced some new songs and then you got heartbroken bopper and rain dance and stuff like that. Great songs, but it, it was different flavor, right? Yeah. Kurt's, uh, impact on the band i don't think can be overstated and and to this day he still has a lot of fans there are a lot of people who really really enjoy what he brought to the band and it's it's always fascinating to me 
when I read stuff in different like Facebook uh, fan groups or fan pages that uh, there's a lot of people who seem to think that Randy uh, was in the band the entire time or something, or that, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, he was there all throughout the entire career up to 1975. And not only is that of course not true because he was replaced a few times by a few different guys, but it also yeah. doesn't even make sense because if he was in the guess who all the way to when they broke up in 1975, then who was putting out those BTO records? And it just doesn't make sense. And then some of those but, songs would never have happened, you know, like the, like the later songs and the clap for the Wolfmans and all that. You, you never know what would have happened with you know, those songs probably sure. would have emerged. Right. Well, sure. We'd definitely be missing uh hand me down world and bus rider. Cause those are songs that Kurt brought from his previous band. Yeah. Um, so if he wasn't in the guess who, then the guess who just don't record that. Um, so yeah, I think Kurt's a real important part of, uh, of the guess who and his, uh, his contributions just can't be uh, over, overstated. One of the best members that they that they ever had, and luckily he he brought so much talent in terms of not only guitar playing, but uh, from the songwriting uh, aspect as well. Yeah, and um, so the early years, I, I didn't realize that Chad Allen and Burton were in the band at the same time, but that was short lived, right? That wasn't very long. That was very short lived, and and yeah, that that kind of era gets glossed over a lot. So it was really important to me to uh, to really dig into that that era and uh, and talk about that um randy often in interviews will say that chad quit the band and then they had to go looking for a new singer and that's when they found this you know teenage punk named burton cummings but uh that's absolutely not true because as you say they they were in the band at the same time they did play live shows together and they did um and they both appear on the third album so uh in fact burton is not a replacement for chad allen burton is the replacement for the original keyboard player, Bob Ashley. Right. So when he left, Burton was brought in just to uh, replace him and then slowly began singing, you know, uh, singing lead a little bit more, a little bit more until finally Chad left. And then uh, Burton yeah. becomes the front man. In my opinion, anyway, there's no album from We Feel Soul all the way to their last, which is Power in the Music in 75. There's no album that doesn't have, you know, at least two or three great songs and then they always, you know, they always have some deep cuts and some weird songs here and yeah. there. Like, there's no album uh, to me where the quality kind of drops. Their level of uh, quality does not uh, change. One of Burton's talents that I don't think really gets talked about uh, too often is I think he brings out the best in other people. So for songwriting um, collaborations. The stuff that he did with Randy, the stuff that he did with Kurt Winter, you know, he co-wrote with Bill Wallace, he co-wrote with Donnie McDougal, co-wrote with Dominic Troiano. All that stuff is better than what any of those guys, for the most part, uh, can do on their own. So Burton can, he can write fantastic material on his own, but he can also work well with a lot of different kind of co-writers and really brings out their best kind of odd in those days you know you, you go in the studio you're expected to bring some kind of a hit song or some kind of a song that's going to chart right i mean that's your goal and then and, and he did it almost every time I, like you said i don't think there was a single album that didn't have a chartable track on it right no there isn't and that's part of part of the credit for that goes to the producer jack richardson yeah because jack would insist on exactly what you just said there's got to be a couple of radio friendly hits in here and if you can bring me those, 
then I'll let you be self-indulgent on a couple of other tracks. So that's the way he was able to maintain a balance in the studio with these guys. You know, if you give me this, yeah. then I'll, you know, I'll let you, you know, have, have a bit of a weird country song or you could do some weird harmonica blues thing over here. Yeah. So, uh, so that balance was maintained on, on every album. And, and yeah. you're, you're right. Every album had uh, at least a couple of songs that got a lot of radio play. And then you got deeper cuts that are a lot more interesting. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I really appreciate that Jack kind of had that uh, template in mind for uh, really the whole catalog. And then, uh, of course, the the Burton Cummings Randy Bachman dynamic. You know, again, you're talking about the why rather than the what. You know, they they split up and got back together a bunch of times. It's an odd thing that that people from the outside would ask. You know, like what what the heck's going on with these guys? They seem to have this love hate thing. Well, a lot of it, I think, just comes down to the old thing of you know they were working so hard. You know, they're touring all the time. They're doing radio appearances. They're doing TV appearances. They're in the studio constantly, and uh, you know, just being on the road as young guys, they just kind of got on each other's nerves. So I think it's only natural for two people who've worked together and had a relationship that they, they come back together every once in a while. Um, you know, Burton sang and played piano on Randy's, uh, survivor solo album. Then Randy started playing guitar on Burton solo records. And then they're doing TV specials together. Uh, I know it's, uh, it's funny. It's like they're brothers, you know, they can, they can have a knockdown drag out fight and then the next day they're having a drink together or <laughs> they're working together again. It's probably one of the longest relationships in Burton's life. You know, when you have that much history, you're going to keep bumping into each other <laughs> once in a while, no, no matter whether you like it or not. In the original days, uh, Randy was kind of looked at as, 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 you know, Burton's like big brother. And it was even told by Burton's mother to keep an eye on Burton on the road. Yeah. So there's a, you know, the, the, the history goes deep with those two. Jim Foster is perhaps best known for his successful recording act, Foster Child, but has also done uh, many other things as well. I've been involved as a songwriter and performer, his solo career as Jim Foster, his time with One Horse Blue, and many other musical adventures that we'll get into through our discussion. So what was your musical background? Like, what, did you play drums, organ? Did you try everything the way a lot of us did? No, uh... We had a fairly musical family, more on my mother's side, and uh, it wasn't a regular occurrence, but once or twice a year, they'd all get together. I'm, you know, five, six years old, seven years old, up to the time I was 10, and uh, my aunt played piano, my uncle played harmonica, my other uncle played lap steel and banjo, and they all sang, and uh, they gave me a ukulele when I was probably five. Uh, which I never took lessons on or anything, but I just dicked around on it, learned how to play Wild Weekend on a ukulele. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, when we moved to Edmonton, the kid across the street had an amazing harmony electric guitar. Oh, it was cool. like the top of the line. Yeah. And uh, he couldn't play it to save his button. Within like three days, I could play it because I understood the mechanics from the ukulele. So I lobbied for a guitar, and that was uh, took till Christmas to get a guitar, you know. Did you take some lessons, or did you just kind of yeah, figure yeah. out? Yeah, no, that was the deal. They bought me a guitar, but I had to take lessons. And mm. uh, did that for about six months, but my ear was better than anything. And uh, it got to the point where I'd be teaching my teacher the songs I just picked up off the radio. So that was that, and uh, I think played with my neighbors, you know. So for you, what was your what was your kind of break? What was that moment where you thought, you know, I might be able to make something out of this. I might be able to make a living out of this. Like, did you have a defining moment when you sort of... Gosh, the turning point, I guess, was I was making money from the time I was, say, 16. Not great money, but money. Yeah. And uh, 
my folks wanted me to go to university. So I did the first year of that. And then the second year of that was, uh, you know, the student loans were involved and they didn't have money for me to go. So I'm having to borrow money to do something I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. So I dropped out and uh, the university threw a gig, a big uh, a concert with the Birds and Chilliwack behind their first album and Edward Bear and my band got the opening slot. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, next thing I know, I'm sitting in the birds' dressing room while they warm up acoustically. I'm sitting right next to Clarence White for an hour. Wow. I got to go with Roger McGuinn to get our checks because I was the band leader. Cool. And Roger McGuinn to me is like Paul McCartney, you know. And uh, so the guy says, "Uh, what's your name? I said, Jim Foster. He says, what band? I said, Joshua Hill. He says, gives me a check. Turns to Roger, what's your name? Roger McGuinn, sir. What band? The Birds, sir. Like, no attitude. (laughs) Talk about an indelible mark on me that you don't have to be an asshole. And so that that was a really big thing. And then we did a good job. So that was in the spring. And then in the September, they brought us back to open for... Eric Burden and War and Nick Chilliwack again and Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. And, oh, wow. You know, so those were big, pivotal things that made me think, okay, yeah. it took another four or five years banging around the town in various bands, mostly which came out of the friends out of that band. We yeah. formed a few more bands and, and would throw our own gigs. And, you know, they, they were the rough and ready days. And then uh, I got a steady gig with a quartet in a, it was a six-night-a-week gig in a kind of a keg and cleavery kind of place, only cooler. It had a lounge with a built-in sound system and everything. These California guys opened it. Oh. They sent a band up from California to open the place. Greg Leitz, who's now the go-to steel player and lap steel player in the world, he was in this band and got me started getting me to play a slide and everything and uh, oh. befriended me. So when they left, it was a six-night-a-gig week or six-night-a-week gig. They did two months, and then it was up for an, another band, so we auditioned, and we got it. Oh, so nice. suddenly I had six nights a week work, and I could work out my original material. And uh, cool. So this was we, in Calgary, I, right? This was in Calgary, Calgary. yeah. yeah. And, and cool. so then I got heard by some uh, local representatives from record companies. It was Warner Brothers, actually, at the time, just the local guys working in the warehouse and stuff. But they yeah. called some people, and next thing I knew, I was doing a demo. Then we didn't even end up signing with Warners because my manager at the time thought, well, let's see what we can get from somebody else. So we ended up signing with CBS, and that was the beginning of Foster Child. How did you end up with the CBS deal? Well, because they heard the demo of Let Me Down Easy, and they said, yeah, it's a great song. We want to re-record it with our producers, which they did. And in some ways uh, may have missed the boat on it because this was an Italian producer who'd worked with Phil Spector. Yeah, and I was I was coming from Eagles and Neil Young, so that stuff was gone. It was like, don't ever bring that acoustic guitar in here again. Yeah, oh, <laughs> interesting. Which is kind of your main thing. It's funny eh, how you get a producer, especially if you get a hot-headed one. It's uh, changes the whole dynamic. And they made us redo "Let Me Down Easy," and it was virtually live in the studio. And it wasn't as good as the single, but the single didn't sound the same, you know. And so that was the redo then on the first album. Of Let Me Down Easy, yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. And and so why why did you decide to redo it again if you'd already had airplay on a previous Well, because it needed to be on the album because that's the only song that we were famous for at that point in I time. Okay. But the producer, this temperamental Italian guy, was, I'm not producing that again. I, I already did that. I can't do that. I oh. just can't do that. And then in 78, you did Troubled Child. That was the, right. the next album for CBS. 
and that's when we really blew our political relationship uh, with CBS because the original producer was the A&R guy. And we wanted to work with a different producer. And we wanted to work with Jim Gaines, who had done all the Steve Miller records and, and had done a lot of stuff in Edmonton, and people knew him. Okay. And he's, a, he's the guy who does Santana. So we brought him up, and that record took a month. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we I think we stepped on a few toes with CBS. And then not only that, but as soon as the record came out, I walked into Fox and Don Schaefer. They'd been very supportive of us. I said, hey, I got the new record here. And Don Schaefer says... Is it disco? Oh. <laughs> I said. I said no. He says can't play it. What? Yeah. Wow. That's all they were playing. Everything had changed. The funniest story about that is that the, the leadoff song was called Hideaway, and uh, somehow or other it ended up down in Windsor, Ontario, on a battle of the new 45s oh. on radio. And Windsor was like the big market because it's right across the river from Detroit. Yeah. And we were up against a song by Queen, and we won. Oh, and and their song was another one bites the dust, and we did. Wow, <laughs> jeez, isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. So God only knows, you know. Yeah, well, it's sort of that that the business is stupid that way too. You're trying to reach for that brass ring, and you think you're almost there, and then these these things happen, and then you get you know you get smacked yeah. back down again. Yeah, <laughs> keeps you humble. So then, yeah, so it, yeah go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so then that was kind of the end of the band. And uh, speaking of being humble, I, I grew a beard and uh, tried to not be Jim Foster anymore and went out and played pubs and just worked on writing. Yeah. And uh, Lou Blair was, had been our manager in Foster Child and had told me that he was interested in managing me, but not the band. Okay. So we were still in touch. And when I had something, I'd send it to him. So I wrote a song called Dancing on the Power Lines. Yeah. He said, I can't believe you wrote this. And so that, because he was more into a rock thing because yeah. you know they had lover boy and bruce allen and brian adams and all of that kind of thing and uh before i even was able to get it out doug and the slugs covered it so we went in and did the record and got an, um, my first american deal with yeah. rca out of new york yeah well that's i listened to the whole album and it's distinctly 80s like you definitely you pivoted oh yeah right? You've got this more straight-ahead 80s rock tunes. It's, like, it's full-on. It's Mike Fraser and Bob Rock. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so that, you could hear those influences, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, we weren't planning to do any touring until we got more tunes done or whatever, but then RCA offered me an opening slot on the Mr. Mr. Tour, and they were number one at Billboard at the time with Broken Wings. Nice. And I didn't have a band. Oh. So uh, I asked Daryl Burgess, who had played drums on the record yeah. and co-written a few things with me. And uh, we got Jim Ryan, who now plays with Dirt Road Opera. Yeah. And uh, Rob Bailey, who's been with a million bands. Yeah. And Mike Skinner came in to play sax. And so we did the tour and we stole all the reviews. Literally, Richard Page came back to, uh, the lead singer from Mr. Mr. came back to uh, record up here with David Foster maybe 20 years later. And Kathy St. Germain said to him, oh, my guitar player opened for you uh, uh, up here. And he said, Jim Foster says, yeah. He says, well, if you read the reviews, we opened for him. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been nice to hear. Brian Vollmer is an icon of the Canadian music scene, best known for his band Helix, with 45 years plus now, I guess. And uh, Brian's a rock and roll soldier. He's basically done it all, touring, recording, producing, and much more. 
I was one of the few musicians in Canada that actually took Super 8 sound film back in the 70s when we first started touring across the country. And I actually had the day that Mount St. Helens blew up. I used to get a real hard time from my manager and the guys in the band because I was always complaining about how much we made. Back in those days, we were making like 150 bucks a week. Yeah. And I could hardly live on that. But at the same time, I was buying these films that were costing me like 10 bucks for a three minute and 20 second roll. And so when I bring it up at meetings, they all go, well, look, at if you need money that bad, then quit taking those films. And I got pissed off because I said, look, at someday you'll thank me for taking these Super 8 sound movies. And I used to get so desperate for money to buy these films. I used to stick a bottle up. I taped it to the uh, the dashboard at the front of the bus and there was a sign on it that said, for the operation, please donate. <laughs> <laughs> and then once I uh, got through my Super 8 film days, then I, pa- I went on to uh, using uh, the little mini discs for my yeah. Sony camera. Well, first off, we went to video, the actual tape. You know, we used to get the tapes and snap the cartridge yeah. in the camera. Oh, yeah. And then I went to mini discs, and they contained about 20 minutes worth of film. And I have 200 of them, (laughs) 200 I took. And uh, on top of that, I have another eight hours of film for when we toured Europe with Ian Gillen in 1989. I have a complete show from stages. I have the show we did, one of the last shows with Paul Hackman in St. Thomas. There was two cameras running that night and the band was really good. How many gigs have you done in your life? 10,000, 20,000, like it's got to be, have you ever tried to add it up? Not really, but uh, it'd have have to be up in the thousands because at one one point, we, one year we actually played more than 300 dates a year. Wow. Yeah. See, that's incredible. Not only were we playing night after night after night, but we were traveling in the most adverse conditions imaginable. Yes. I remember waking up in the bunk and I could see my breath in my damn bunk. Yeah, you know, and now and now when I'm 66 years old, I got arthritis. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> well, but you, well, uh, we slept in those those freezing cold conditions, and the hotel rooms were, were not much better. Yeah, that's true. I remember one time arriving in the Queen's Hotel in Hanover. It was the same week that I met Brian Adams singing for Sweeney Todd down at the high school. Yep. Anyway, I went up to my room. And it was the middle of winter, and it's snowing, and there's no bloody window pane, and there's snow blowing across my room. Oh, jeez. And I go back down to the owner. I said, hey, I can't the room, room has a broken window, and I can't stay there. He says, well, that's all the rooms I got. You either stay there or go home. <laughs> so I phoned my manager. I said, there's no window in my room. He says, well, he says, you can come home, but if you do, nobody gets paid. What do you want to do? So I stayed and sucked it up and put a piece of cardboard in the window. And I got a sleeping bag from somewhere and I stayed. You see, that's why you're a rock and roll soldier. You've, you've done those. you got the war stories right there. Well, you know, when they say the show must go on, really what yep. that means is translation. I got to get paid. Yeah, I got exactly. bills. <laughs> there are many situations where I did not want to sing. I could barely talk back in those days and uh, mm-hmm. I had to go on because... If I didn't, I knew I was putting everybody in a situation, a bad situation. Once you did well in the southern Ontario region where the agency was located, they were out of Waterloo, Ontario. Then they send you up to northern Ontario, like Kappas Casing, Hurst, Timmins, Sudbury, Smooth Rock Falls, Longlock, 
the Sioux, places like that. And if you survived Northern Ontario, because it was rough, oh, yeah. you'd go in and you'd get requests from the audience thrown at you, taped to ashtrays. They can whip it up. You see, them, you see an ashtray come through the light saying you just duck hopefully at yeah. the last second. I got one one time and I picked it. I took the piece of paper out because requests get off the stage now. <laughs> <laughs> Real nice. The labels tried to control us, but they didn't quite control Helis because we were one of the first bands ever to do indie albums. And we got rejected by Capitol Records, and I could show you the rejection letters. I think one of them I got framed. It's on the wall. But those letters, rejection letters, made me stronger. It just made me want it more. And yeah. we didn't stop when we got rejected. We, we, we released our own album on the H&S Records, which stood for Helix's site for manager. Yeah. And the first album, Breaking Loose, became a hit in Texas. Uh, and we did our first ever tour of Texas. Uh, we played, um, for, our first gig was actually Helotus. And then uh, from there, we went to um, Amarillo College, and we did a big outdoor college. And by the way, I got it all in film. And then from there, we went to Houston and Dallas, and we came home, and all our friends thought we were stars. Yeah. And we even ended up on Global News. And then on the second album, White Lace and Black Leather, it became a hit in Europe. And a number one import uh, with the song Women, Whiskey, and Sin, which we stole from a line in a, a sixth song. Uh, born, born for adventure. Huh. I was born, born for adventure. Women, whiskey, and yeah. sin. Well, yeah. hey, that's good. That's a good chorus. So we had a, a song called "Women, Whiskey, and Sin." Uh, give me women, whiskey, and sin, yeah. and um, it became a huge hit for us in England. And and metal was just taking off, especially with Iron Maiden. The guy from EMI over there was really tuned into what was happening with the metal scene. So he came over to Canada and he went and talked with Dean Cameron, the president of Capitol Records, and he talked Dean and taking a, a good look at us because cool. he thought we were on the on the cutting edge of what was happening music-wise over in Europe and it was bound to come to Canada if it was already over there. So they were looking at us up the gas works. And uh, we put on a rip-roaring second set and they were blown away. Well, they, they said, okay, we we're leaving and we'll let you know, right? And they left the bar, and at the very last song of the set, Brent blew his amp up. So Brent went out, and instead of us just canceling the third set, he found a practice amp, and he put a mic up to that little dinky little practice amp that was about one foot by one foot, <laughs> and we rocked out the last set. And unbeknownst to us, Capital snuck back in the back door and watched us. Afterwards, they said, look it. We were so impressed with the fact that you didn't stop when the amp went down that we thought this band won't stop for anything. And we had one of the strongest followings across Canada. At that time, one of the first questions that the record company would ask the band was, where do you have a following? Well, we could say we got a following right from coast to coast because yeah. we toured from coast to coast incessantly all that time. And we had built up a following. Then we had our little newsletter and we were very, uh, uh, accessible band. Some bands hide away in the dressing room. Uh, they don't want people to know what they even look like. Not so the case with Helix. Everybody knew what we looked like. Each person abandoned their own little following. And so when we got signed, people right across the country were already buying our first two independent albums, Breaking Loose and White Lace and Black Love. The same thing in the United States and over in Europe. You signed the big deal, right? You signed the, the U.S. Uh, capital EMI deal. Was that what you ended up getting? We were signed to Capital EMI out of the tower in L.A. 
And the reason that happened was because Capitol, uh, Rec or Dean Cameron's at Capitol Records in Toronto thought that if we signed the Canadian label, then the U.S. part of the label would ignore us. We mm. wouldn't get the attention we deserved. And so he advised us to get signed to the American label. Yeah. And was that a good thing? That was a good thing. Yeah. So, so do you get nostalgic looking back on stuff? I mean, it's been forty years now, right? Since uh, since the early '80s, when you got your big deal and stuff. How do you how do you consider it looking back? What, I'm sixty-six you... years old, and I've seen different situations. They form yeah. my political beliefs. They yeah. form my uh, attitude towards life, yeah. uh, the way I handle my life, the way I handle my business. Yeah, my word is my bond. Yeah. If you say you're going to do, if I say I'm going to do something. And keep my word. And I got 50 years uh, behind me to back it up. And that's what I write on. Nostalgia, no, but I'm always picking up my past because that's where my money comes from. Yeah. That's why people pay, I don't know, whatever, to go see Helix. It's because of the incredible history of the band. You want to see the, the guys that made that history. Yeah. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't sit around wishing it was like 1983. Yeah. So looking back though, is there anything that you would have changed or handled differently? Maybe your managers, your bandmates or the studio, or you just kind of took no, it even as even the came? bad times. You, you lose, you learn more from the bad times and you learn from the good times. Yeah. Hey, when things are good, everybody's your buddy. Yeah. Right. When things are bad, that just shows the metal of a man, how you react to the situation when you're being down and kicked. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, keyboardist, vocalist, and all-around wild and crazy guy, Andrew Johns, who is perhaps best known for his successful band, Boulevard. And he's basically done it all from touring, recording, producing, corporate events, and much more, which we will get into as we start talking. The one thing that's always struck me about you, I mean, you're obviously a very schooled player. I mean, I've watched you play, and, and you must have had lots of piano lessons. You're very intense and very competent, and you're enthusiastic when you play. So you're obviously well-trained because you make it look mm -hmm. easy. So what, what, was your, mm -hmm. what was your background? Um, yeah, no, I took all the classical. I took up to third year, grade 10, and, uh, um, and yeah, it's all because I was actually forced. I hated, I hated it. I hated practicing, but, yeah. um, you know, consequently and subsequently when I've done gigs and my parents have been in the audience, I yell at them and it's their fault. It's you. <laughs> it's you. It's like, yeah. Well, for, for me, like for being a, a musician myself, I can tell the difference between a three fingered hacker <laughs> right. and, a, and somebody who's, who could actually staring at their hands all night. <laughs> well, that's what I am, right? If I can play piano, but I mean, yeah, right. And I did a little bit of it, but, uh, you know, I can play the, the sort of first inversion chords and I understand the piano, but I can't play anywhere near what, you know, someone like yourself can play. So I just wanted to, to draw that distinction because that is one thing about you that, that stands out to me anyways, like you can actually play and then you get to the point where you make it look easy too, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful place to be because right. then you can have fun and be competent, but. Well, then you can do, you can do as, you know, as an entertainer, you can do a whole lot, a whole lot more too, right? With eye contact and silly faces and. Yeah. And yeah. uh, pay attention to the room, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, which is, that's what people want, right? Yeah. So They don't want yeah. a narcissist on stage. Were your parents horrified when you went? My dad always talked about acid rock. You're playing all that acid, acid <laughs> yeah. rock. I'm like, dad. Yeah. Well, every, every parent Stevens. complains <laughs> about every generation of musician, right? No matter what it is. So, um, you know, yeah, the, I don't, my parents were, there was not that much judgment, but because they were, you know, we can't afford you to send you to, you know, to university, they, they we couldn't afford you know any edu secondary education, so I don't think they had much of a say when I was out making money. So, yeah, my my dad's biggest thing was when I when I did solo stuff, I was always successful. And when I was in kind of bands, we were 
kind of mediocre. So he was, yeah. he would always step up when I was, when the band would break up and go, well, you know, now it's time to get successful, son. Or, yeah. or he was always, he was always proud of me when I was doing it on my own. So tell me about Boulevard. Like you, uh, that band was originally formed in Calgary. That's not where you're from though. Where were you born? I was born in Vancouver, but I no, but I grew up in Calgary. I was there since okay. I was three, so yeah, no, I'm gotcha. I'm a Calgarian. Yeah. Um, and the whole the whole band was put together by Mark Holden. Well, it was a studio project, so the band wasn't yeah. really put together. So he uh, he you know got the songs written, wrote the songs, and had lots of co writing and lots of help, and then had you know the best guys in Vancouver and uh, Calgary record them. He's quite a guy. He's had two record deals in the '80s from two different countries. We got signed in Germany in 84 first yeah. and went over there and did videos and TV shows and then um, came back and he got us signed with MCA. So, and then, so what happened? How did you end up in Vancouver? Like how did the band make the move? Cause a few bands did that. Like, like Loverboy did that like right before you guys did. And then there's yeah. a few, few bands that formed there and they ended up in Vancouver. Well, I think, I think that's purely Bruce Allen because we, we okay. got the same management. So, um, um, we were, I, th- I think it was just relocate to management and, and where the hub yeah. is going to be. And, it, you know, because it didn't matter where MCA was. They were in Toronto. So uh, I think it was just being close to management. And then, then you're, you know, you're standing in the office when you need something. So, Well, I guess it kind of makes sense. You write about the, and, and also the studio. There was a studio buzz that was forming around Vancouver too. Brian Adams was here and Loverboy mm-hmm. was here and yeah. Little Mountain was getting going. Mushroom had already had lots of success. So, Well, and I think that was the other part of it too, is we knew, you know, I mean, they were, we were going to be recording in Vancouver, you know, so it's like, well, we might as well start finding places to live. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Did the Calgary Olympics and and hopped in the car and went. (laughs) Yeah. And then you you stayed here, right? Yeah. 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 And then, so then, and then you did the, just, I just have to briefly ask you about the, the BLVD and then the Boulevard. Oh no. (laughs) Well, that, that actually messed up. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think the band had, we had a third album would have been more household name. Yeah. Um, but we got messed up because the first album, they decided that the last minute, because we had this little BLVD sign in the, in the, on the album cover. Yeah. And instead of going with Boulevard spelled out as a band and then not call the album that, they just went with the whole name of BLVD. And then, and then the second record was Boulevard spelled out again. And, yeah. and the record stores put them in different bins. Oh. Like, we were, they weren't the same band. So we never had continuity. Oh. So, you know, even if, uh, well, and I think uh, Much Music was playing us as BLBD and then the second album came out as Boulevard. <laughs> so it's like, you know, kind of some mistakes. And then we were actually signed out of LA, um, which one of maybe under 10 Canadian bands ever signed out of LA. And, mm. um, and uh, I don't know if I should say this, but uh, Bruce called up <laughs> Irving Azoff and told him he might not know what he was doing enough. And, we were added to 60 radio stations and all of a sudden we weren't. Oh. So, um, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of little things or maybe big things that conspired to not, yeah, not push us up over the edge. So, well, I guess that's the double edged sword too. Cause like, you know, that you brought up Bruce Allen. I mean, he's a real pit bull, which really works for you, but then, you know, he's going to offend some people and he doesn't seem to care about that. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, and he, you know, he had Brian in his, you know, he had, he had, he was massively successful. So he, you know, he would just, um, you know, do what Bruce does. And he's through, you know, he throws his weight around. So, yeah. And a lot of time it worked, but it, <laughs> you know, with the president of MCA records, Irving Azoff managing the Eagles. Yeah. Yeah. No. Who's this guy from Canada? Like, yeah. So, yeah. And A considering bunch. that they were, 
they were, I mean, uh, our drummer, Randall Stahl, was down there going to college, drum college, and he was in the MCA office in LA and they were bouncing off the walls, excited to to push us. And, oh, cool. Uh, you know, so he, the whole, the whole staff and the whole company were, were behind us and, and they were doing, you know, everything they could and they were doing the best they could. And we, you know, we were added to 60 stations in a week. Yeah. And I was like, well, what's wrong with that? And so mm. when, you know, <laughs> somebody starts telling them there's something wrong with that. They go, uh, no, I think we were doing okay, but you know, yeah. now we won't. <laughs> yeah. But then, so how much touring did you do in the States? Like how much time did you spend down there? We didn't do any. We did oh, one, uh, okay. we toured with Boston and we, we came across Canada with Boston and then we did, did, we did one show in Seattle with them. Okay. And, uh, and is it's amazing because we are we're a Calgary band. You know we're playing, we're opening for Boston. Well, you know you guys got to listen to the opening act. I'm sorry, Boston will be right here. <laughs> you know they're coming <laughs> on in a half an hour. <laughs> but we got we got we got booed in Calgary. Like for, there oh. was some certain number of people in the front. You know we yeah we got booed in in Calgary and booed in Vancouver. I mean not the whole crowd, but a few yeah. people. You know, where's Boston? It's like, oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Give us a shot here. It's here, so I'll funny. See more than a more than a feeling. But then we yeah. got to Seattle, and the crowd crowd never heard of us, and they went nuts. Hmm. So you know, it's just that different culture, right? Yeah, and so I guess taking a springboard off of that, you would have needed to do that Calgary date, or sorry, the the Seattle date, and then do another like twenty of those. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And do the whole thing, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Well, and and like I said, you know, backtrack to the LA decision. We would have probably done that had things yeah. not, <laughs> yeah. the, the carpet not been pulled from underneath yeah. the drum set. Never Give Up came out, right? And I had a cover band at the time in the late eighties and we did that song. Actually, it was, it was on the charts. It was top 40. We were a top 40 band. We thought it was a cool song. So mm. I actually sang, we learned it and we I sang it, you know, and love and, it. Love it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I think I remember walking into a few places and like hearing the song, people covering it. It was like, oh, yeah. oh yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. And then you did the video, right? That was in a warehouse, I think. Where, where was that yeah, shot? That was the Dominion Bridge warehouse that has now become, I think, Dominion Studios or Bridge Studios. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was before anything was, was in there. And that was five in the morning. And that was, I think, February or <laughs> March. And then they were blowing those 10-foot fans across the, oh. the, the standing water <laughs> Nasty. To, to get to get the you know, hair blowing yeah. wind effect. Oh, jeez. And I, oh my goodness. And yeah. so. And you're playing a guitar too. What's well, up Well, you know, that? and that, that was, I'd never, you know, there's a whole other story. Like, you know, uh, I had friends that saw the video before I did and they went, yeah. Hey, we saw your video. Wow. How come you're not in it? Like, what? <laughs> like, what? And I was like, yeah, your hand is in it. It's like, oh no. So I, I remember like, looking at the, watching the video going, well, how come I'm not in this? Well, they handed me that keytar that morning and then said, here's what you're doing for the video. It's like, ah, uh. uh. and I had, you know, I, I sit down and I play or I stand and I play behind normal keyboards. And I was like, so I guess, well, and I did see the footage later and I said, like, okay, I understand why I'm not in the video. Cause I was just, I looked like an idiot. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't look relaxed and I was biting my lip and I was like making stupid faces and, so there's my hand. <laughs> I did. I did notice that that you they, there was very few shots of you. I noticed the keytar, and then it, the whole yeah. video is kind of a dark looking video, anyways. Like yeah. it's not it's yeah. not a bright sort of, and I, it didn't look like a high budge one because some of the high budget ones are the big eighties well, sort of stage. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think it was high. I mean, those days. I mean, well, here's a whole other story. 
I think it was high. It cost us a lot of money. Yeah. Whether it cost a lot of money, um, as you know, or maybe you know, listeners don't know, is uh, the the budgets they had um, didn't necessarily all go to the product that it was put on paper for, and there were a lot of people in the middle that got uh, twenty thousand dollars for yeah. this and twenty. Yeah. No, there was there was payola. There was there was people skimming. There was money just going to the you know, hey, can we use your, If we use your studio, we'll give you twenty five. Like. That yeah. we 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 were six hundred thousand dollars in the hole after the first album. Oh, so you tell me where that all went. Yeah, you know. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either LinerNotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.